From Impact Alpha, this is Returns on Investment, a show about impact investing. I'm Brian Walsh, head of impact for the fintech company LiquidNet. With me here in New York City is David Bank, founder and editor-in-chief of Impact Alpha. Hi, David. Hi, Brian. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's good to be in the same room with you. Yeah. And joining us also from New York, but not in the same room, is Imogen Rose-Smith, an investment fellow with the University of California. Hello, Imogen. Hi, Brian. I'm sorry I'm not there with you guys. I was looking forward to it. On today's show, we're going to throw a birthday party for Impact Investing, and all of you are invited. David, are you excited about a birthday party? Happy birthday. This is, this is where my son says, Daddy, stop singing. Yeah, I, I also think that that uh, might be copyright. I don't think we have the rights <laughs> to for you to finish finish that song. Anyone can now have, has the rights to happy birthday. Oh, is that, is that right? Okay, well, you learned something new. So the birthday party we're throwing, though, is for Impact Investing because it's now 10 years old. Um, it was in October of 2007 at the Bellagio retreat in Italy that the Rockefeller Foundation owns that they organized a gathering. And at that gathering, the term impact investing was coined. So, David, wh- what do we make of this marker in time a decade after uh, impact was coined? Well, there's an old saw about how people overestimate change in the short term and underestimate it in the long term. So I think possibly there's been a shortfall in terms of where things were expected to be back then, um, where things would have been now uh, that people thought back then. On the other hand, I do think that, you know, 10 or, or say 13 years hence, let's say 2030, that we will find that global capital has in fact, you know, had this major kind of rotation towards social environmental impact. So I think that the fundamentals are true, that private capital does have a role and an opportunity in driving social environmental impact. I think some of the, you know, there's been a lot of back and forth debates and definitional arguments and semantics and white papers. Um, And I think there's been a little bit of a sort of logjam in sort of getting the whole thing up and running. On the other hand, you know, as we come into 2018, more people call themselves impact investors more, you know, people know that term. A few years ago, nobody knew what you were talking about. So I do think that, you know, again, we're, we're, we're ever on the cusp of the tipping point. So Imogen, what do you, what do you make of this? Because I mean, if you, if you think about uh, a decade of time, uh, a, a lot can happen in, in, in 10 years. And just consider the following. In, in 2007, the financial crisis uh, had not yet hit. Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns were still independent going concerns. But the following companies had not yet even been started. And that's Airbnb, Spotify, Uber, BuzzFeed, Instagram, WhatsApp, and Snapchat uh, have all been born in the past 10 years. And yet Impact Investing, born 10 years ago, uh, still seems to be uh, finding its way in the world. So what do you make of that, Imogen? Yeah, I mean, I actually largely agree with David's position on this. <laughs> so a first for <laughs> ROI. All right, um, we're done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think you could take a glasses half full and a glasses half empty position, right? I, I give impact investing a lot of credit for having lasted, for being the, the, the term and the idea that has been adopted and gained traction has, has done so with a broader swath than you know, the sort of usual foundation crowd who coined it. Um, you know, impact investing became the trendy, fashionable thing to do 
amongst, you know, the ultra high net worth, it did become, it has gained traction within the investment community. You know, you'll see panels on impact investing amongst institutional investors. You know, the PRI has an impact investing module, that being the principles for responsible investment, which is a sort of an institutional bellwether for caring about this kind of stuff. Well, so I don't think anything, there's nothing quite as powerful as an idea whose time has come as panels at investor conferences. So I think. Uh, <laughs> well, no, no, you need to have some white paper. You need it, to have no. some white papers. <laughs> it, it's sort of gaining traction with mainstream was part of the goal. If we need to you know, shift trillions of dollars in capital, then it needed to be more than a niche boutique conversation. It well, has it achieved that. However, it's not really having a galvanizing effect, right? And in some ways, you could say that it is still a negative, that many investors still think that they're giving up returns for some of these other issues. And in fact, potentially, the trendiness and the, the sort of foundationiness of this conversation is alienating and potentially has had a negative impact on some would be market participants. David, what's the counterexample? Like, what did we what do we expect ten years ago? What did the impact investing community, uh, the nascent impact investing community, such as it was ten years ago, what did they expect to have been uh, accomplished so far uh, at this point in time? Well, I mean, you could take it just on sort of raw, you know, dollars. And um, I think the original report that actually kind of came out of or was con coincident with those Bellagio meetings that the Rockefeller Foundation organized. Um, talked about a 500 billion or a, 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 a trillion dollar market, I believe by 2020. I'm not, I don't have those numbers at my fingertip. You know, the gin last year said, or this year said, we're at 114 billion. That's kind of the best rough estimate. Uh, you know, it sort of always depends how you count and what, what you count. Um, so, you know, we've probably fallen short on sort of the ramp of dollars. So that's one, one measure, obviously. The second measure, though, I think is more sort of conceptual. And there was a big sort of ideological overhang that had to be overcome, which was this idea that the role of every corporation is simply to maximize shareholder value and that there was no other role for capital and that now there is a broad perception that, in fact, um, we've talked about it on this podcast, that, in fact, there are multiple benefits or multiple stakeholders or multiple um, roles for capital to play. And now, of course, you know, some of that is foundation capital, as Imogen said, but some of it is is commercial capital that is looking for impact. And it's looking for impact, you know, for a variety of reasons, including that there are big challenges to solve that are big business opportunities. But I think that potentially you're wrong in how you frame up how people think of the role of capital, right? In a way, Impact investing comes from, you know, it, it comes from a foundation model. And the foundation model is a very U.S. model. It's the sort of, you know, you make money on one hand and then you get taxed on it. Therefore, you give it away on the other. And sort of one hand wash. And there's, there's this idea, really, that one hand is somehow washing away the sins of the other. I mean, the Rockefeller family is a classic example of this, right? Um, and so there is this, in, ironically, this idea that something is negative or, or destructive or evil about capitalism that needs to be counterbalanced by the foundation community. And that is a very kind of American and Randish notion of how capitalism 
and economic systems work. I think I think you're right. I mean, the, you know, you mentioned the Rockefeller Foundation and and Bellagio, and then the Rockefeller Foundation spent a fair amount of money over the next five years, kind of setting up many of the kind of infrastructure organizations of impact investing, the GIN, the Global Impact Investing Network, and IRIS, which is kind of a taxonomy of how to measure impact, and a bunch of a bunch of entities that sort of form the kind of backbone of of the whole thing, and that's both kind of you know essential infrastructure and sort of the original sin at the same time. And there is a kind of foundation DNA that that Imogen mentioned that has been kind of hard to escape. And that has probably held back commercial capital, which doesn't, you know, which may see that there's broader stakeholders and broader purpose of capital, but does not want to be philanthropic. I mean, they want to deliver a return for their investors. And so there's been kind of this ongoing tension, again, the source of many white papers, uh, between this philanthropic impulse of impact investing and this, <laughs> here's, here's the drinking game we talked about last time, the impact alpha part of impact <laughs> investing, where you find that there really are uh, market beating opportunities. Now, market beating both, again, both financially sometimes in cases where there's growth markets, whether they're emerging markets around the world or new technologies or new business models or outsized impact that you can get truly transformational sort of system change impact. You can bring billions of people into the financial system by offering them financial services. And that is both a good business and it grows the pie and it creates new consumers and it creates new businesses. And it's a, it's a system level impact. So there's impact alpha in this is, is, has been the way we framed it up, which is you can do more with your money. Right. So you're saying that, David, that this evolution is, is from the original sin, as you put it. And just for the record, want to catch that you did call the gin the original sin of impact investing is that is that fair or you're saying i think it said the original gin (laughs) you're walking back that comment i see what you did there so this idea that the impact investing was born of foundation white papers and has been kind of uh marked and branded as under that context and so a lot of people see it as oh that must be donative capital that must be philanthropic capital that must be concessionary capital that must not be a compelling return so a lot of commercially minded uh investors would want to run away from any kind of effort or initiative or or uh or kind of segment of the market that was born out of a philanthropic uh lens um and and so you're saying that that we can maybe mark success from the philanthropic white paper to the panel at the commercial investor conference is that is that progress uh, to, to speak of? <laughs> I, the the way, my shorthand for this is that is, is when in these white papers or on these panels when people talk about supply and demand, um, there there's two ways to think about it, and the philanthropic view is that supply is the supply of capital, and there's all these people demanding it. And that's the way that that foundations generally think about it because they're sitting there with the money and all these grant seekers in the in the old model come and ask and demand the money. The way the investment world thinks about it is that there's all this capital and it demands somewhere to go because it has to be put somewhere. It has to be put to work so that it can be productive. And so the supply is really what people call product in the investment world, which are opportunities to put that money. So in the investment world, Capital is actually the demand, and supply is entrepreneurs, ventures, companies, you know, all kinds of financial vehicles to put that money to work. And that, I think, you'll know which side of the argument 
people or which side of this divide people are on by how they use supply and demand. And so, and so Imogen, taking that notion of uh, supply and demand, which is actually a model that I speak about uh, often, is that we do need to activate demand from capital owners and capital managers uh, to seek out investment opportunities that align with their values and that have these extra financial uh, returns. Uh, but if, if we do that, if there's enough activation of that capital, then the supply of investable opportunities, the supply of products will certainly be developed. So I Imogen, do you see that in your world of institutional capital, that there is an actual demand from asset managers and their ultimate asset owners. Absolutely, that there, there is there is a demand for this in with, within certain conversations from all investors of all walks of life. So, for example, um, Newberger Berman has they've had what they would call social responsible investing for a very long time, forty years. Recently, they sort of rebooted that, and now they really have a team that is focusing on impact investing and sort of deeply thinking about how do we integrate impact investing to what we do and seeing it as a value added. I think that's a very mainstream, very highly respected money manager that's doing this. And they're doing it, yes, because they see demand and they see that mainstream institutional investors are grappling with these issues. It's also the banks and how capital markets work. I mean, it's, it's sort of, it's missing the woods for the trees to be like, oh, you know, these large banks are doing stuff in impact investing. They're doing stuff in impact investing with their private wealth groups for the most part, which is pretty much a rounding error. How much investment banking are they doing around fossil fuels? Right? And the thing is, is that's the stuff that stuff still makes them money and it makes them a lot more money than they're making from the impact side of their private wealth business. And so it's not just the investment asset owners, it's the whole way capital markets function. And I don't think that this, this the is impact community has done a good job of getting their head around that. And so, David, do you think that the impact community, such as it is, as it's constituted today, is equipped to truly uh, influence the entire global capital markets? Or will it take other forces and other players and other participants uh, in the capital markets uh, to take it to that next level? Well, clearly it will take other participants, as Imogen is saying. And I think that's what I mean when I say that by 2030, this will look quite different. And uh, I think, for example, we talk about the $2.5 trillion needed every year to realize this 2030 sustainable development goals or the 40 to 50 trillion needed to realize the Paris Climate Accords. That is, those are not, you know, small boutique, one-off private equity venture kind of investments. Those are major infrastructural project finance kind of deals, you know, in the hundreds of millions or billions of dollars um, that only the big pension funds, the big sovereign wealth funds can do. So when, it, when we look back, we will see that those guys got mobilized. Now, what I, where I think the current or what the self-identified impact investing world offers to that world is a, a set of kind of practices that they have spent a lot of time, including in all of these panels, which we kind of joke about, and these white papers, thinking about impact metrics, thinking about how you, you know, beneficiaries and how you actually think about unintended consequences and all these very serious and thorny issues when you try to mix 
you know, new, when you try to bring new factors into the investment decision making. So, you know, year, you know, decades ago when people brought risk into it, there was a whole, you know, set of conferences and white papers about how do you measure risk? How do you assess risk? How do you, you know, measure risk against return? How do you get, what's the value? How do you get compensated? Those are not that dissimilar from the questions now about how do you measure and value impact? So when all is said and done, those things will be integrated into the normal investment processes you know, the risks will have been, you know, well understood and capital will shift. It may or may not involve particularly the small boutique funds and individual impact investors that are now, you know, beating the drum, but they will have played a very important role in that evolution. I, I was with you up until the point where you said uncapital will shift, right? Um, maybe time would have been better spent figuring out what is the thing where we can make a boat ton of money and impact, right? Like proving the value case, improving the investment case, not the sort of the infrastructure case, right? Like they've built the plumbing, but have they built the plumbing for the right system? Or what have they really built the plumbing for a foundation system to solve their own kind of little problem, which is really more to do with how much of their capital they want to control. Well, just to take it back to Brian's point about the financial crisis, I mean, the acid test was, you know, loans that went bad in 2007, 2008. And the at least the mythology is that the you know loans to small farmers and small businessmen in the developing world made by microfinance institutions did much better than, you know, home mortgages and a bunch of other things that, you know, were considered much more commercially bankable, you know, before the crisis. So, you know, I think that some of these cases have been proven out. Um, I think others, you know, obviously remain to be seen. But there, you know, the, the, the number of cases where the impact proposition plays out, you know, I think you know, probably outweighs those where it's been disproven. Of course, there've been, you know, there've been busts and failures and, you know, returns have lagged in, in, in certain areas. But I think that over time, you know, the, the, the investment case is being proven. It's not clear that the ability to make a lot of money doing this has been proven. So if you compare sort of the, the, the evolution of the impact of investing industry to what happened with Michael Milken and high yield bonds, it's night and day, right? Like, so walk us through that. What happened with Michael Milken? <laughs> Mike, Michael Milken single-handedly created the high-yield bond market and made a boat ton of money for himself and many others in the process. Yes, then he got prosecuted and went to jail, but he continues to claim that he was innocent. And why it matters is Michael Milken was at, actually understands the impact industry and it has made it part of his foundation. But if you look at, like, what was the difference? Like, people made a huge amount of money. And without that, it's difficult to get the broader buy-in. And that goes back to this inherent tension between what does impact want to be? Does it want to be capitalism? Does it want to be profitable? Because if it doesn't, that presents a problem. 
Well, you know, we're at, we're at risk here. Of, uh, this is this is a risk that that infects the, the the field as a whole of sort of lumping everything into one bucket. And you know, there's many investment theses combined in this impact idea. There's many kinds of capital that are seeking you know different kinds of return, both risks, returns, and impact. And you know, you can't just talk about it as one thing. And you know, there is, as you said. The, the need for some parts of it to show, you know, outsized returns so that it brings in more money. But you're not going to be able to, you know, drive huge margins when you're trying to serve, you know, very poor people. So you've got to distinguish what you're talking about and, again, distinguish what returns those investors want to derive. You can make a huge case for, like, sort of fintech financial inclusion business models that could make a huge amount of money. The, the tension is at what point do you flip over to exploiting people, Right. And that's a legitimate tension and a legitimate conversation to have. But I don't know, and I don't even know that that needs the backing of the impact community. Look, microfinance was doing fine before impact showed up, right? Well, that's another part of this 10-year thing. You know, people would object that, you know, uh, you know, the, the whole problem is a bunch of people go to go to a retreat center on Lake Como in Italy at a Bellagio and invent the word impact when, as you mentioned, you know, microfinance folks have been working at for many decades. You know, the whole community development world had been at it for many decades. You know, they didn't they may have coined the term, they didn't invent the practice. And so that's actually a great question is does the term itself need to be celebrated and should we be throwing a birthday party for impact investing um, or will the true success of impact investing be measured not by how many people are using the term but how uh, how effectively is the future of capitalism responsive to uh, the needs of people and communities and the environment as a whole time will tell well, that's going to do it for this episode of Returns on Investment. Thank you, Imogen. Thank you. And thank you, David. Thank you both. This podcast has been a production of Impact Alpha. Be sure to sign up for Impact Alpha's newsletter, The Brief, providing daily news and actionable intelligence for the growing number of people working to build an inclusive, sustainable, and prosperous future. Special thanks to our technical producer, Isaac Silk. Thank you, Isaac. From New York, I'm Brian Walsh. Thanks so much for listening to Returns on Investment. Thank you.